and welcome to the University of St Andrews Institute of Intellectual History series, New Works in Intellectual History. I'm here today with Jamie Giannoussos, who teaches history at Mount St Mary's University. And today we're talking about her book, The Rule of Manhood, Tyranny, Gender and Classical Republicanism in England, 1603 to 1660, published by Cambridge University Press. So I think the book brilliantly explores the ways classical discourses of tyranny were fueled by gendered concepts of power and order in the 17th century and the book roots the intellectual origins of the English Revolution in 17th century interpretations of manliness. Um, so before we get into sort of questions about the book, can you tell us what actually led you to write this book to start with or if there was sort of a moment you decided yeah, that's the research that I'm going to do? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um... I've been thinking about republicanism a long time, uh, even before I actually knew that's what it was called. I, I, as a young person in college, was really interested in questions about citizenship and virtue and, and how you make a participatory government that's equal but also excellent. And um, so when I came to graduate school and learned a bit more about the tradition through intellectual historians like J.J. Pocock, Quentin Skinner, and others, of course. Um, I intended to write my PhD thesis and then my first book on the classical origins of um, classical republicanism and to really look at tyranny quite seriously. And obviously that all made it into the book, but I had no intentions to work on gender. Um, I'd never actually done a lot of work on gender and um, was not reading my sources attending to that. But then um, at Johns Hopkins, where I was doing my PhD, we had the real pleasure of Laura Gowing coming over and teaching for a year at Hopkins. And so I took a seminar with her on gender um, from one of the greats, right? Yeah. And um, it, it transformed the way I saw my sources. I mean, I, I had been reading these stories about tyranny very closely and suddenly they made a lot more sense because I attended to the ways they were using gender discourse to make these claims. And so um, a lot of then the development of the book was um, thinking hard about how gender discourse was playing. And it, and it was really only time as I worked through these sources that I, I came to my bolder thesis that really the recovery of manliness um, is the foundational concept a lot of these Republican authors are, are striving for. It's, it's not what I set out to write, but what I came to after yeah. several years. So did it feel like it was kind of like a missing piece that when you like that sort of clicked in, you were like, oh, I understand this so much better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, because I had been, I, I also had been working in the, the virtue theory discourses a very long time. Um, I'd been reading it I, as an undergraduate. I was a great books major. And so I'd been reading Aristotle and thinking very hard about these things. and. Um, when I started studying gender, I, I actually felt this odd betrayal, <laughs> like I'd been reading these sources in this classical tradition as if it had always meant me, and it never had meant someone like me, right, um, classically conceived at least. And so um, that missing piece then really made sense of many things. It made sense of, I thought, a lot of the emphases we see, it makes sense of uh, you know, so many stories about tyranny and Republican thought are based on sexual assault and rape and the mutilation of female bodies and really horrific things. Um, 
patricide too as a, as a regular theme. And so it, it made sense of these discourses coming up over and over again. And there was one point at which I thought this project might actually be one that focused very much on languages of rape. Um, but thankfully, um, as I worked into the other sources, I felt like there could be more things to emphasize, some of them somewhat more positive than that in parts of this tradition that could be recovered. So, um, so yeah, it, it did seem to be the missing piece, but it was still always complicated for me. Yeah, I definitely hit the same point when I was like, oh no, is this going to turn into sort of, we're going to be looking at rape, which was a yeah. bit daunting. It is, right? Um, and I should just say here too that one thing I've always found in writing about this is historians are often pushed to cleanse our language from any bias or prejudice to write in these ways that sound as objective as possible. But I kept running into the situations where I would be writing about truly horrific things and truly horrific things that so many of us women um, have experienced or know people who have experienced. And um, and so I would even just write in the adjectives like this horrific description. And there were always editors trying to cut those words from my writing. And I always put them back in um, because I, I thought, surely we can call this awful. I mean, you know, yeah. and not and not then as readers mischaracterize um, what we're studying. So and I must say my, my PhD advisor, uh, John Marshall, was always supportive of keeping those adjectives in. So, yeah, but that was it. That was it is a difficult part of the, the history. Yeah, it is definitely. Um, so could you give us sort of a brief outline of the structure of the book and sort of a sense of the main argument that you or arguments that you make in the book? Yes, for sure. It's it's a large book and sometimes I feel like I wrote two books. Um, <laughs> and it, fact that I wrote a second introduction to the second part, I always thought signaled this is kind of two books, but I kept it together as one because um, there is a, a, a relationship that I feel is very important between the two parts. So the first half of the book focuses before the English Civil Wars, um, and it starts in the early reign of King James, so around 1603. Um, up through the reign of King Charles, and it is really focused on the ways that the classical humanist tradition um, brought forward understandings of tyranny into the language and grammar and conceptions of political thought in this earlier period, the early Stuart period. Um, I have a background in English literature, and I really enjoyed in this section looking at a lot of diverse source texts that took these classical humanist stories of um, tyranny and put them on the stage or made them into poems and tried to make them a part of the culture of the early Stuart England. So the first half of that book then is trying to show that it was very possible in fact for Englishmen um, in the early part of the period to describe their rulers as tyrants based on a lot more um, misdeeds than people maybe thought before. So. Um, and simultaneously that an enduring way to think about tyranny in this period was a deeply gendered way of thinking about it as failed masculinity. So um, I thought it was so telling. I found all these stories about Nero and there's so many awful stories <laughs> about Nero, but the ones that people seem to think about a lot were Nero um, in his household and his gendered failings. So the first half of the book is dealing with that. 
Um, the second half of the book then is switching to uh, classical Republican thought in England. So it's switching to the English Civil Wars and into the 1650s. And in the second half of the book then, I make two primary arguments. Um, the first one is that the rise of English classical republicanism has a relationship to those conceptions of tyranny in the early period. And that's why I thought this needed to be one book. Um, and, in, and in fact, they're responding to an idea that tyranny ruins the manliness of English subjects and, and citizens once you get into the republican tradition. Um, then the second argument is therefore a, a reading of the classical republican tradition that says that the recovery of manliness was this fundamental driver of these classical republican um, writings. And uh, and so I, I offer readings then of, of John Milton and Marchmont Needham and then a variety of people responding to Oliver Cromwell to think about how gender is shaping publican tradition. My, my great ambitious hope for this book <laughs> is that um, after people read it, they will feel that obligated to deal with gender when they deal with the classical Republican tradition. They may not agree with all of my interpretations of everything, but I just hope no longer people can read some of these treatises and just never mention gender as a major factor. Um, so that's my grand hope for the book. We'll see, <laughs> we'll see if that works, but yeah. Yeah, I think it definitely makes you think about gender in a different way, particularly the way that it's spoken about. Um, so when you were doing the research, was there anything that you found particularly interesting or surprising when you were conducting research for the book? Hmm. Gosh, I, I, you know, I did the research over so long. I'm trying to think, trying to think about some particular instances. Um, I already mentioned about Nero. I, I think something that surprised me um, were just how many tyranny stories I found and how much they seemed to return to certain themes. Um, so I'd, I'd pick up plays or poems or whatever about these um, tyrants. And, and another one is Appius Claudius in the earlier period. And, and yet I found that they were very often um, as I said, dealing with um, issues of sexual assault or issues of household. So I, I don't know, I, it's hard to describe one thing, but it would just be again and again, I get to the text and say, oh, there there, this is again, <laughs> you know, like I've seen yeah. it before. Um, in all of that, I actually really enjoyed uh, and was most surprised probably, I, I fell down the rabbit hole a bit in thinking about the womb and tyranny and the ways that um, queens get drawn into these discourses um, because they can imprint in the wombs. And that was a big surprise for me and something I really enjoyed. And I'm I'm indebted to the work of uh, Mary Fizell and others um, who helped me with that part. Um, otherwise, I think um, I think the the other main surprises. Um, I don't know, they, they really just came from um, when I did the Milton chapter. I've been reading Milton a very long time, and um, that chapter just it gave me the space to read even more Milton. Um, and really just finding across Milton's thought um, so many instances of him wrestling with um, 
manliness and masculinity um, was really rewarding and um, and surprising in some ways because it again had been a discourse I hadn't been paying attention to in my earlier work. Yeah, I remember reading um, the analysis that you wrote of when Nero's mother was stabbed in the womb and thinking that was quite a, a poignant sort of moment and use of language when they were sort of reciting that story. Yes, for sure, for sure. Um, and just awful. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, but but yeah, so interesting and in, in so many in so many ways. Yeah, definitely. Um, so how does the book fit with sort of your previous works and will it influence sort of future research that you look to do? Yeah, so in a lot of ways, I, I do see the book as a culmination of a lot of my earlier work. Um, at the undergraduate level, um, I didn't even actually know what intellectual history was at that point, but I was trained in political philosophy and great books. I was a, a double major and um, at that time I was reading John Locke very closely, but I was thinking about John Locke um, and what he had to say about education and citizenship. And so a lot of my very earliest work um, as a writer was thinking through how Locke's educational system was still built upon a virtue notion that made it seem a little problematic in the ways he was picked up in the quote unquote liberalism tradition. Um, and so I, I'm not writing on Locke in my book, but that kind of notion of education and citizenship, can virtue be taught? Um, what's the relationship between virtue and the polis? Um, was really what shaped a lot of my work until I got to this book. So that's why I was working on Milton. I was reading Milton's educational thought for my first master's. Um, I did work on classical humanism, education and virtue for my second master's. Um, and then I was looking at uh, notions of classical history and virtue for kind of my earliest research at Johns Hopkins, but I was doing that uh, about the 1590s. So, um, so anyway, I do think there's a bit of a trajectory there that led me to the project. Um, afterwards, did you want me to talk about after like my uh, ongoing trajectory? Was that a part of this question? Yeah, if you'd like to. Not, sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> I'm in a flight of fancy here talking about all this. Um, so after the project, it has set me on a, a longer term trajectory. I I don't plan to do at this point. I don't plan to do a book that's um, quote unquote mainly about gender for my next work, but it will be a part of everything I write. So I don't see these as compartmentalized, um, but the, the point of the argument won't be um, gender related, but um, I'm, I'm in the process of working on on two books now. One of them um, is picking up where I left off with Marchmont Needham in this first book and thinking harder about him as a Republican theorist. I'm very interested in two strands of his thought. Um, one is the relationship between his work as a news writer and Republicanism. And I'm working with the hypothesis that newspapers as an invention in, in um, the early modern period are going to shape the Republican tradition towards a more populist model. So if you want to use Machiavelli here, it's going to make it more of a Roman than a Venetian model. Yeah. So um, that's one thing I'm interested in with Marchmont Needham. Uh, the other thing I'm looking at with Marchmont Needham is the way his medical thought 
might have shaped his views of citizenship and citizen bodies. Um, and so I'm I'm reading and thinking very hard about um, his medical thoughts on things like scurvy and how that um, shapes citizens and what that does to the polis. Um, and in this book, I plan to kind of carry these threads of thought into the early American Revolution um, and see how they get picked up there. But uh, that work's not done yet. So <laughs> to, that to be pretty cool. Um, the other book I'm working on is, is a popular history of the classical Republican tradition and tyranny, um, hopefully for a trade press. And so for that, I'm, I'm really trying to translate a lot of my um, prior work into something that a broader audience would find interesting. So yeah, that sounds really cool. It sounds like a really good introduction to tyranny and classical republicanism as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's exciting and it's, it's fun. I, I've not written a popular work, um, and so it's, a, it's a different way of writing. And I, and I actually have felt elated by, um, I don't know, the freedom to write in a, a sassier way. I don't know how to put it, but in a less academic and formal way, it, it's been fun. So I've, I've enjoyed that too. Yeah, definitely. We look forward to seeing it. So you mentioned um, considering gender when we study republicanism and going forward, but how else do you think that the book contributes to or changes sort of the field of research, particularly, I guess, with classical republicanism and, and the English Revolution and, and so on, and going forward, I guess, too, with um, the French Revolution, the American Revolution? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll start with um, the English Revolution. I one thing about this book is I did hope it would contribute to conversations in what we call post-revisionism. Um, and so how is it or we are to understand the early to mid 17th century? And, um, you know, there there has been many decades now of fears and worries about constructing these long Marxist or Whiggish narratives about the 17th century. Um, but uh, I'm concerned about doing one of those simple origin stories as well. But um, I, I really do see myself coming alongside other post-revisionist historians of this period. Um, I've been really shaped by people like Thomas Cogswell. Um, I've been really shaped by people like Peter Lake um, and others and um, uh, Bellany and trying to think about the ways that um, these popular discourses point towards an England that had less consensus than um, some people have thought. Um, I'm also trying to reclaim print as an important medium to understand thought. Um, so uh, I've been really shaped actually by reading historians of the French Revolution for my own methods and, and um, Roger Chartier and others um, and trying to think about how something had to be conceivable for it to be possible, right? So the English Revolution, um, it had to be conceivable to enter civil war and, and eventually behead the king. Maybe it wasn't conceivable in 1603, but at some point we have to see some kind of intellectual groundwork being laid. Um, and we should be recognizing that um, as part of the stories we tell about the 17th century. And so my hope by writing such a long piece that runs across the early Stuart period through the classical uh, Republican writings of the 1650s, that I'm providing uh, support to more of a post-revisionist view. Uh, of the revolution. Um, the relationship to later, um, 
I'm really I'm really, really interested in how republicanism changes into the 18th century. And my book is very much about men, and I really welcome it being brought alongside studies about women and about women in the republics, both in the 17th century and later. Um, there's been some really wonderful books that come out right around the, with mine about um, writing women into the English Revolution, into English classical republicanism. And then there's a lot of good work, I think, that is and still is to be done um, for the later ones. So my hope is that not only uh, gender will be considered in masculinity, but that will also lead us to thinking more broadly about the relationship between marriage and republicanism, between masculinity and femininity and citizenship, um, conceptions of virtue and manners as we get into the 18th century. Um, so I'm hoping that I'm I'm anchoring um, some early thought that will help thinking about these later periods. Um, I should also say too that um, one way that my book was conceived from the French Revolution was arguments that in the in the French Revolution we have a band of brothers acting, and I I am. Um, have kind of had a mantra about the English Revolution. It's a band of fathers acting, right? Like we don't really have fraternity here. We have patriarchalism um, expanded um, yeah. rather than um, fraternity. And so um, so I, I hope that that opens some interesting questions about the relationship between these revolutions. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a really interesting approach and it definitely sets a groundwork going forward for other historians. So yeah, the final question I've got, which I think you've already pretty much answered, is 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 there anything else that you kind of expect readers or students to kind of find significant in the book for them? I think one thing um, that perhaps I haven't mentioned is when we think about gender in the 17th century, um, well, I guess there's two things. There really has been a prejudice for a long time that men are not carriers of gender. And that has been challenged really beautifully in a lot of fields of history. Um, and Alexander Shepard um, is someone I admire greatly who's done a lot of that work. Um, but it remains an intellectual history, very understudied the ways that male thinkers are also carriers of gender. And so I do hope that more intellectual historians will take on um, this banner, not just under republicanism, but in other fields of political thought. Um, the other thing I would say, too, is that a lot of people have written about the humanist tradition, classical humanism. Um, there's lots of great books on that. Um, what I found really interesting were the ways that classical humanists recognized gendered concepts in their own scholarship. So. Um, in my first chapter, I talk about how we see people in sermons and other things writing about, you know, in English, we don't have the the words for, you know, where to versus um, homo and the, you know, and they're actually bemoaning the lack of words in English to make gendered distinctions. And so thinking with gender in this period is not just us importing solely 21st century notions of gender, but actually means uncovering what they saw and understood to be going on. Um, and so um, so anyway, I hope that that's helpful and encouraging to the student who wants to go down these, these paths. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, that's all the questions I've got for you. So a massive thank you for coming on to talk to us about your book. Um, and we wish you all the best with your future projects and can't wait to have you back to talk about them. So thank you very much. Great, thank you so much, Megan. <laughs>